Uh, my name is John Yap with the City of Iowa City. Uh, tonight we have John Meeky from Opticos Design uh, here to present a summary uh, of their assessment and recommendations for the Northside neighborhood and the South District neighborhood. Uh, Opticos has been working on this since last February. Uh, they've held a series of public meetings that many of you attended. Uh, as well as interviews with stakeholders, property owners, uh, and some builders and developers. Uh, the final presentation uh, will be held on August 15th at the Iowa City City Council work session. Uh, and, but tonight is a, is a preliminary presentation uh, for you. We are televised uh, tonight and after John's presentation, uh, we have a microphone and we'll be able to take questions and answers uh, and so forth. So with that, I'd like to introduce John Meeky. Thank you, John. It is good to see everyone here tonight. A lot of familiar faces um, from the last two trips that we've done out here. Again, tonight is primarily a summary of the recommendations um, for um, just based on the analysis that we did and the discussions we've had with you all as a community. Um, so we'll do a quick introduction, just some of, I'll just speak a little bit about what we've done up to uh, today. Some of the recommendations for the north side, the recommendations for the south district plan area, and then a little bit of a preview of the next steps. And as John mentioned, uh, Dan from my office will be back on August 15th to present. So we were here in February, and we really had that as an opportunity to uh, drive around the community. We had a whole series of stakeholder meetings, and we had an uh, evening presentation uh, with the North Side and an evening presentation with the South District. Uh, we came back in May, and at that time, we came back and we talked a little bit about what we heard, talked a little bit about kind of the things that we started to understand in, in reading your zoning code and understanding the central district plan and understanding the south uh, district plan area. Um, and we are uh, presenting today just kind of those first recommendations that we have. And again, Dan will be back in a couple weeks to present final recommendations and, and he'll have a draft report that summarizes everything from the last few trips. Um, so again, in terms of introductions, Please understand that this process was really about us getting to understand the community, understand the issues that are going on, and come to this point of making recommendations. Recommendations that will lead to future processes, which will involve the public in talking and thinking about some of the things that I'll be presenting tonight. So think of this as just a first step in understanding some of the things that you all as community might consider in the future uh, for changes to both uh, to the zoning code that you have today and some of the um, address some of the issues that we heard about both in the north side and the south side. So in the north side, I think with the vision for the north side, we heard a lot. We heard a lot of things, a lot of great things. Um, really improving the options of, of housing, but understanding that there is competition with student housing, right? It is uh, a, a major driver, both in the, particularly in the north side, but really in many parts of, of your community, um, the student housing that, that uh, exists. And that runs really, really runs into some problems with the historic preservation goals you all as a community have set. You have a really beautiful north side neighborhood. You have many other neighborhoods in your city that have historic uh, preservation standards in place as well. And we just wanna make sure that the zoning code is merely matching what you're saying in your historic district plans. And um, in the last presentation that we gave last time, we talked a little bit about some of those issues that were being caused. We also heard very clearly that the issue of parking in the north side, both in the commercial and in the neighborhoods, right? So in the commercial districts, the need really for having some parking to provide for the existing businesses and future businesses but then just the influx of, of parking that happens during the day uh, in the north side. So then there were questions about, you know, understanding um, in the north side market uh, area, what could happen in terms of infill? Um, what are the opportunity sites? City owns property there. There are other parcels there as well. Uh, you all did a, a really wonderful uh, central district plan that really thought about that future. 
you uh, adjusted your zoning to match that vision. But we'd like to be able to just think about what could we do uh, to continue the efforts that you all have done. We heard a little bit about improving the walkability and access uh, and safety within the community. So uh, Rick Shellman last time, uh, the traffic engineer who was working with us, was talking a little bit about design speeds of roadways. And uh, we mentioned a little bit the need that some community members felt that it wasn't necessarily always, they didn't always feel safe walking around the north side at night, uh, particularly when uh, it was dark out. Um, and then again, just, uh, you know, potentially looking at some zoning changes, and we'll talk about these things in more depth. So, as I mentioned, the Central District Plan, um, it's a really wonderful resource document, and you have your zoning. Those two documents really work well to kind of guide what development should be in the north side. Uh, but one of the things that we noted was that really the intent, the intent of what was trying to be done in the north side exists in the central district plan, and then you have your zoning. And so they're kind of separated. And so one thing to look to do, which is a relatively straightforward thing to do, is bring the intent from the central district plan and put it into the zoning. And that may mean that the zoning for the north side has to be particular to the north side, but really put it into the zone district so that everyone who, who um, reads your zoning and is thinking about doing development, or thinking about doing a renovation, or thinking about doing a small addition, they see that intent uh, right there in the zoning. We talked also about, when I mentioned earlier, the historic district um, plan that you have. It's a really wonderful document that guides both the scale and the massing of buildings. Talks a lot about the architectural character. What are those things that are really important about the building? What are the right elements to use? Um, and what we noted, though, was that what the zoning code says in terms of the massing and scale and how much of a building you could build was not really in line with what the historic district plan was saying. And in particular, the rear setback. One of the great things about the north side and the parts of the east side that I've managed to visit is that you have this wonderful pattern of the houses being relatively close to the street, you know, 15 to 25 feet back from the front property line. But you have wonderful backyards very large backyards uh, where you're able to handle a lot of things, whether it's um, small gardens or the parking for a lot of the lots. Uh, but the zoning doesn't acknowledge that today. The zoning says you can get really close to that rear back property line. And in general, that hasn't been a huge issue in single family houses, but it has shown up in duplex projects that have come in or the multifamily projects. So one thing to do to bring the zoning more in line with the historic district plan is to actually think about adjusting some of those standards, that rear setback. Still plenty of room to do development, but just acknowledge that it can match more closely the existing pattern found in the community. Um, and you know that, so this, this number two about creating these standards that would incorporate the historic district intent and really support and, and um, provide more strength to the historic district plans. The vast majority of the north side is in is either a landmarked building or a, uh, some form of contributing building. But there are other parcels in the north side which there are opportunities for um, housing. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about is this idea of the missing middle housing, things between a single family house and a large apartment building. And one of the great things about the north side is that you already have this. You have this as a historic pattern that's been built. You have historic duplexes, small side-by-side -side duplexes where there are two units. They're almost like townhouses, but there is only a run of two. Or you have small four-unit buildings. You also have newer buildings where a single-family house has been converted into a four- or six-unit building. Uh, might have happened in the 70s or 80s or 90s. Um, but again, this idea that there is housing of different scales that fits in with the character of um, the north side. And we'll touch on this also when we talk about the South District plan area. So when we talk about those types, like those side-by-side -side duplexes or small runs of townhouses or the cottage court, um, these are opportunities to think about on those parcels that aren't a contributing parcel or aren't a historic landmark parcel, how can we think about allowing a slightly more diverse set of housing types that can be family-friendly? And again, the approach here is really to respect the historic uh, preservation guidelines um, in, in their development. 
Um, and as I mentioned, I think the importance here is that the scale of those buildings really should be the scale of a house. Um, you have uh, both in the north side and then just adjacent near downtown, you have much larger apartment buildings that are being built. And those apartment buildings have a place and a purpose. But within the north side, given the historic preservation plan that you have, the character of the district, uh, really thinking about buildings that are at that size of, the ho of a house, uh, we think is really appropriate. The one thing that we note here is that um, if, if the city moves forward with studying this further, it's important to bring an economist in. It's important to understand um, what is the cost to acquire land, or if you already own the land, what is the cost per square foot to do new construction, right? So understanding how feasible each of those missing middle types is, is a really important thing um, to understand uh, what likely could happen. Also understand that allowing these missing middle types uh, again, because you have the historic district plan, you have the contributing parcels, you have the historic landmark parcels. Um, for the north side, it's not necessarily a lot of change because there aren't, that, there aren't many parcels and the likelihood of mo even most of those parcels redeveloping is not very great. But thinking about these as tools that can be used also elsewhere in the community where you have opportunities, and we'll talk about in the south district, where you might um, it's a way of implementing uh, the desire of having a more diverse set of housing types. And then Northside, in, in conversations, we also heard about the Northside Marketplace. And again, the Central District Plan has a great vision there. It sets forward a lot of important thought in terms of pedestrian realm. The zoning changes that have been implemented are really, really important that you've gotten already. So requiring ground floor shop fronts and really making sure that you're keeping an active uses around. Um, all of those changes you've done as a community already are incredibly great steps forward. But one thing to consider is as, as, as things are changing in the community is are there new opportunities Right, again, the, the discussion of the city-owned parking lot, um, what can happen there um, over, over the long term. So what we would recommend is that um, you, can, you do a charrette process, a process where um, I think you have done two of these in the community, both for um, uh, the riverfront and for the peninsula. Just an opportunity to sit down with the community and think about as a community, where, where do we see uh, the central district plan getting refined? What are things that we need to strengthen more to continue to implement that plan? And how can we do that? So uh, we, uh, we show here a couple photographs from work sessions that we, we've done over the last two trips. But we also show the first photograph is just members of my team working in another community, really thinking about design, really like what happens, what can happen on that city lot, what can happen on each of these parcels? How do we preserve the historic character of the North, uh, north Side Marketplace with the ones, some of the buildings just being one story and some of them being three story? Um, and that's usually a multi-day process. It gives us time to interact with the community, think about different ideas, bounce different ideas off. Usually the first few days, you're just throwing as many ideas out and understanding from the community really working towards um, a vision at the end that uh, we all uh, can agree upon. And the idea here is it can be a, a method of adding on to the existing plan, the central district plan that you have, and also inform any zoning changes um, you all uh, may consider based on the vision. We felt pretty strongly about this one, um, making some adjustments to your impervious cover requirements within the zoning code. So the impervious cover is, is everything from your buildings to your parking and understanding like how much of that lot really should be paved over or how much of it should we be preserving for yards and gardens. Uh, and it has various reasons. It has a lot to do with stormwater, it has a lot to do with um, just the character of your existing community. So this is a little bit of a, of a, you know, we're throwing out a lot of recommendation. This is a recommendation where many communities have worked to think about, especially when you have a historic district or an area where there are a large amount of design guidelines. Thinking about um, having pre-approved designs for accessory dwelling units. Because currently today, at when, if one was to, um, um, in your historic district uh, plan, you have pre-approved garage designs, right, that match kind of the character of, of different styles of buildings that exist on the north side. 
one option to consider would be to do the same thing for accessory dwelling units. It just makes it a little bit easier for a homeowner to understand how could I put in an accessory dwelling unit? What would it look like? What, are the, what could the costs be for such a thing? Uh, and so this is something that we would recommend you consider looking into. Um, it's something that um, some communities across the country have done just to make it a little bit easier for people to understand. Oops, sorry. Uh, and going back to the safety, um, so one of the things that we heard pretty clearly was the desire to, um, to look into lighting. Lighting along particularly the residential neighborhoods where uh, some people uh, weren't feeling comfortable. Uh, and we know that you're a, you're a community that has a, a dark sky ordinance, so really trying to preserve that nighttime sky. But you know, a lot of the new efforts, um, you can do both. You can provide lighting at the ground level and preserve kind of the dark sky um, and to be able to see the stars and whatnot. Uh, and you know, I think there's a continued discussion with communities is when, when uh, community members have expressed that they don't feel safe walking along streets, are there particular streets that are kind of a higher priority? What kind of lighting are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the kind of lights that you have in the north side marketplace that are kind of pedestrian scale at 14 or 16 feet tall and they have maybe a little acorn on top? Or are you really thinking about kind of sidewalk, pedestrian uh, scale uh, walkway lights like are shown in the lower, uh, lower left image here? Where it's really just about lighting up the walkway a little bit better so it's easier to see, easier not to trip on a sidewalk or in terms of transportation and parking, I think one of the things that um, this, uh, we, we, we um, sorry, Rick Chelman studied was the parking issues. So currently today, um, you are allowed to park on one side of the street on an even day and allowed to park on another side on an odd day. And so you guys flip and flop on the streets. Um, one way of addressing the parking um, the, the concerns about there not being enough parking is to go back to a system that, where you might allow parking on both sides of the street. And in the north side, um, that would also have the benefit of also on some of the streets uh, reducing um, speeding. Uh, the narrowing of the feeling of the narrowing of the street by having parking on both sides um, often reduces uh, traffic speeds. And what Rick found was that he looked at those streets during the day when you had parking on one side of the street and he looked at what the speeds were and he looked at that same street which allowed parking on both sides of the street at night and what were the speeds. And again, the data was just showing that even just within that change of time of day that you were having speed reductions. This is obviously something that probably would have to be um, uh, looked into more and would probably be done more on a trial basis where you might try it out on a few blocks and see how it works. See what happens in terms of the parking, see what happens in terms of the speeding. So you could have the ability to kind of address both the parking issues and the speeding issues at the same time. But we also recognize, we heard you know, discussion about many of the alleyways that come out on the streets, about how sometimes it's very hard as people are coming out of those alleys to see cars coming in both directions. Or for honestly, for being on that street as you're driving and, and note, seeing someone come out of an alley. So there needs to be a little more study on this. But again, these are recommendations for future steps to think about. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the South District a little bit and then um, we'll come back for questions for both. So for the South District, you have the South District plan which has set forth a really um, great vision. It has um, land uses. It talks a little bit about street network. You all have the wonderful Greenway, the uh, True Blood Park, uh, which is that the great reuse of the old, um, was it a sand pit or a gravel pit? It was a sand quarry, okay. Um, so again, you know, what we saw there was in discussions was thinking about, you know, on, particularly along McCollister, how do you create a series of neighborhood nodes? One of those neighborhood nodes might have retail, but think about other, things that can happen along that roadway in terms of creating nodes of activity and thinking about connectivity. Um, really build upon the great um, parks and greenway system that you have in place today. Um, it's really wonderful to see that getting built before development is proposed out there. So that's a wonderful thing. 
And then again, just thinking about different options, a more diverse set of housing options that could be provided. Um, improving street connectivity, um, really to most importantly there to think about getting connectivity, but also thinking about not having through traffic. So it's that balance of being able to have the connectivity, but also avoid through traffic. Um, improve walkability and safety, and then introducing new zones that might be able to um, provide additional um, housing options and predictability in the South District plan area. So this is, um, these are kind of um, the main things here is, is thinking about in the South District, it's, it's different than the North Side because it's, it's agricultural land now. But if you read the South District Plan, its goal is very much so to be like the North Side in terms of being a mix of housing types, having connectivity, having parks and schools embedded within it. And you have the wonderful school today you have already in the South District, but continuing that effort and work doesn't necessarily have to be the pure street grid that you have in the North Side. But we think one of the things that um, we could work on with you all as a community is thinking about what standards, in addition to the subdivision standards you have today that talk about how frequently you need connect, uh, street connections, to think about, well, what are the regulations about how much park space or where the park, might, park spaces might be located? Thinking about the mix of housing types that you want, not only across the South District, but maybe even within a block or within um, three or four blocks area. And we refer this to often as a, as a traditional neighborhood uh, development ordinance. You already have many of the key parts. You have um, some good, one, uh, some great uh, street cross sections. You have great connectivity standards. You already have great parks in the South District. But thinking about just adding a couple more think pieces to that puzzle in terms of getting you development that um, really meets that that goal of walkable and and uh, diversity of housing. So with that also might likely be some new zone districts, right? One of the things that we looked at is that you have um, some zone districts that would allow you to get missing middle housing types, but aren't really encouraging that. Again, the kind of the wonderful mix that you have in the north side of the duplexes, the four unit buildings, all living and coexisting at the same time with single family houses. Um, so again, this may be the same kind of zone district that's used in the north side, or it could be a variation of a, of a district that might be created for the north side. Uh, and again, just more standards that should be considered. Uh, here we are back with the missing middle, just thinking about, you know, is there a district that mostly focuses on single family houses, duplexes, three unit buildings? Is there another district that focuses on, on triplexes, duplexes, but also allows row houses and some of the four unit buildings? So we can think about combinations of ways that we can think about these different options of providing housing for people and, and provide different districts that can do that. Uh, we talked a little bit about the idea of maybe having some pre-designed plans or just gathering more examples of, of missing middle types that have been done across the country. Uh, and really, this is just to allow people to understand, you know, how do we build what, what developers used to build in the past, what you see in the north side, the duplexes, the four-unit buildings. Duplexes, generally, developers do well now. I mean, we've seen a lot of duplexes, even in new construction here in Iowa City. But... That small four-unit building or a cottage court. So, uh, and back to the transportation discussion. So the idea of nodes. So here on in yellow is uh, McAllister, and uh, just the concept that uh, Rick Chelman threw out, threw out about these nodes. That every, about every half a mile, there might be a new node, right? Some kind of activity. So if you start at Gilbert and McAllister, that's where you have uh, True Blood Park. You have the new uh, gas station that's going in. Um, you have the city looking in the future to do um, a new um, facility there as well. But as you move your way east along McAllister, is there another node that maybe is more focused on the parks? And then when you get to, um, and apologies, I forgot, the Sycamore. When you get to Sycamore, where you have the new roundabout, the community's always envisioned that to be the spot where you would have the retail because you'll have both the north-south traffic along Sycamore, you'll have east-west traffic of McAllister, which makes some sense. And it's also able to provide, in the middle of the community, some neighborhood-related uh, services. And then as McAllister moves east, 
and crosses over the greenway and makes its way over. But again, think about different nodes. Those nodes can be parks. They could be um, other civic uses. Uh, but the idea that there's a series of events that happen along the way. And that, that discussion really needs to also focus in, in on you know, where, where do you have con connections? So when we had the South District meeting last, last time, we talked a little bit about that, that maybe, maybe at each of these nodes, this is where you get the four-way traffic or you get a roundabout. So the traffic can move in all directions. But maybe you have other street, con street connections to McAllister, but they're really only right in, right outs, where you can only turn right in or um, turn right off of McAllister to get onto that local neighborhood street, or you turn right onto McAllister. Really thinking about where do you allow full traffic movements and where do you um, balance that, need, that desire for connectivity, but also through traffic and safety. Um, and then, you know, thinking about, we, we Rick drew up a, another street network diagram. So for those of you who attended the South District Plan, we had a street network diagram. And the key here is that the, the end result of the way that the streets are put together can look, you can end up with many variations. But the key is that you're getting the connectivity, that you're getting a series of parks, that you're providing um, a rich area of different uh, opportunities. Um, in terms of next steps, like as we mentioned, um, Dan from my office will be back in August to go to the work session to present the final recommendations and the report. Uh, with that, I would open it up for questions. Um, if we, maybe we'll start with the north side and then we can jump to the south side and we can spend a little bit of time. Yeah, so that was, that was something that definitely came up in our stakeholder interviews and our meetings. We can add that to the recommendations. I think that can go with the lighting because I think the importance there is understanding um, both long-term maintenance of alleyways and um, the lighting. So, how, you know, if one was to implement that, what are the options of one, how do you fund that in the short term in terms of getting those improvements done? But then really it's a question of how do we put a system in place that over the long term can be maintained? And so there are options out there in terms of different programs that you can do to think about how to fund that and then really prioritize with streets. But thank you. We can, we can look into that and make sure that we add the alleyways in as well. Um, the first recommendation in both the north and the south side um, present, presentation talked about making it possible for families in the area uh, this is subtle, but I think it's important. It's not just families in the area, especially in the north side. I'm from mm -hmm. the north side. Mm -hmm. I want to make it a place that people can afford to move to mm -hmm. rather than um, for, you know, make it possible for the people who are there to stay there. I want, I want more families moving into my neighborhood. Sure. I assume the people on the south side do, too. <laughs> I'd like to ask that same question in a bit different way, and that is, in addition to providing diversity of housing, missing middle, especially the lower end, what if you had an additional objective of encouraging young families, which is both the cost and the size and amenities thing? Uh, how would you use this diverse housing to meet the second objective? Sure. So. Um that's, these are both great points about both the affordability and family. So, you know, families all different sizes and different stages. Um, when I, I'll just throw out my example, I have, I have three kids who are no, I used to say, used to say I have three young kids. They're all teenagers now, so they're not so young. They're not quite adults yet. But uh, when we were, um, when our, all of our kids were younger than four, we lived in a two-bedroom townhouse, and we squeezed in, and that worked for a little while. And then, then as 
they got older, they really needed more, a little bit more space, so we moved into a, a three-bedroom house. Uh, and eventually, we did a small addition, and we got you know, each of them now has a room. Uh, but I say that only because as families, um, the, really, I think as you described, it, it, it's important to understand that families at different stages, the size of the family, need different needs. Sometimes you can squeeze into smaller units. You might need to grow a little bit and need more space. But then when the kids move out, it's an opportunity also not necessarily always needing that larger house size. So when we talk about the missing middle types, often what we're talking about is that that provides you a, a more diverse housing options so that you can have some smaller units, you can have some medium-sized units. But really when you're talking about a larger house like the house um, that I live in now with my teenagers, um, that's truly a single-family house that you think of as in, in your community. But allowing that kind of diversity of set of housing types gives you, over time, ability to adjust. Um, we, Dan, Dan often talks about one of his neighbors, um, the, yeah, the, the mom is a teacher at the local elementary school, and two of her now young adult or adult children uh, now live in two other units on a small property that is a triplex. And so they're able to be there. They each have their own individual units. They have their own privacy, but they have the ability to be right next to each other. Um, so we often talk about the missing middle as, as the opportunity to provide that diverse range. In terms of affordability, I will say um, missing middle types tend to be affordable when compared to other new construction. But please remember, new construction is always more expensive than the existing fabric you have today. So the historic district's uh, um, ability or, or, or goal of preserving, maintaining the beautiful houses that you all have uh, is one good way of maintaining a good level of affordability. Because no matter, um, it's, you can't really build yourself um, uh, affordability. It, there's always, it's always going to be uh, more expensive than the existing housing that you have today. Thank you. Thanks for coming to do this presentation. Um, I just had one thought and a question as well as they're unrelated. So the thought was just about the alleys. One of the things that I talked about in meetings with you is that the alley that we're on is overbuilt for its purpose. You know, it's really just a place for people to park and that alley has been paved in concrete in the neighborhood next door to the north side, Goosetown. Those alleys are really, were never paved and so they serve a very different purpose which is much more residential. I would be comfortable with my kids playing on alleys in Goosetown. I would not be comfortable with them playing on alleys in the north side. But I also think that related kind of like to all the traffic calming stuff, if they're right now the only use for the alleys in the north side pretty much are for parking. And so they become a kind of no man's land and that makes it dangerous for pedestrians. I think that those alleys that are paved, if we do see more accessory structures built, which I think is a really great idea for the north side, then there's more use, residential use of those alleys and people invest in those alleys a little bit more and I think that would also have a calming effect. So I think I'll kind of have the feeling yeah. if the alley hasn't been paved and it's gravel, that it's actually good. And if it has been paved, then we need to rethink how the, what role those alleys form, hold in our community. Um, the other thing, which is the question, is that uh, I agree with the parking recommendations and all the traffic calming and stuff. Um, there's been some talk about using a permitted parking system to help fund other priorities in the neighborhood. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. For instance, if you are going to give a recommendation to the city to say, you know, this is something like with lighting in the neighborhood, mm -hmm. we think you as a city should prioritize in this because people don't feel safe and there's petty crime or not so yeah. petty crime in the north side. Uh, or is this something that you think would be best to come from the community saying, okay, we're going to create a, you know, self-tax situation or we're going to permit this so we can have money to invest. I'm just curious if you have an, a recommendation on what you've seen as successful and easier to implement in other communities. So in, in terms of um, the parking district, uh, I will tell you um, residential permit parking is, should not be thought of as a source of revenue. Uh, commercial parking districts, on the other hand, um, those tend to be a great way of taking the money that's, that's um, 
uh, gained and reinvesting it within the commercial area. And uh, that is often done through what's uh, sometimes called a public improvement district or a um, lighting and landscaping district. And uh, that system can also be used in residential though. So um, if, if, if the goal on the north side is to think about getting some lighting and doing a parking permit program, it is possible to also do a, um, a, um, a um, um, apologies, <laughs> a public improvement district, uh, which would be some form of, of tax or fee that is used to help main, implement the lighting, implement the alleys, implement the parking permit program, and then maintain those over the long term. Um, I had a question on the north side marketplace. Mm -hmm. Did you have examples of forms that you were considering for that location, or, or is that something that will be part of the recommendations as a specific charrette? So I think those forms would come out of the charrette. Um, you know, the, the central district plan does a good job of describing kind of the historic character and the intent of the future. I think one of the, one of the things that could come out of a charrette or a public workshop process would be just continuing to look at the opportunity sites. So again, like the, the city parking lot is one option. And if that city parking lot redeveloped into a simple parking structure that might be just two levels of parking, what does that mean for other, um, for all, all the users in the area? What if that was a three-story parking structure or a four-story parking structure? What if it wasn't a parking structure? What if there was another way of getting, of handling the parking somewhere else? So I think those are, those, the, the hope there is to be able to use a public process to think about that. And I think one of the keys there will be to have uh, an economist on board uh, to think about kind of what the costs are and, and what, what makes sense, given the rents in the area. Talking about the uh, south side, uh, as you know, the south side now consists of fairly large areas of undeveloped land and fairly large areas of very developed land, a lot of it, if not most of it, residential, <clears throat> with a in-place street system. Mm -hmm. So in planning for development in the uh, undeveloped areas, uh, is it possible to consider what, uh, what can be done to uh, uh, so that everyone in the present residential developments can have good access to whatever happens in the new areas. Yeah, that's a that's a really good um, question. I mean, I think if one simply looks uh, at the greenway system that you have now in the South District in the other other uh, otherwise agricultural land still, that get, provided the opportunity for everyone to have access. So I think um, one of the keys is to make sure that as the South District continues to expand, uh, sorry, to, as it redevelops, uh, that there is that additional connectivity, there's the additional park network where it's integrated into, into the community so everyone can access it. So it might mean additional bike trails, it might mean other systems so that everyone can, can take advantage of, of, of all the amenities that would be provided. Since we're going to the South District, um, S4, you had mentioned that there were, is that set, is S4 set? These are recommendations. These are okay. just, you're right, and um, these are recommendations on, on kind of a punch list of things that council can consider and the community can consider to do moving forward. Uh, in terms of prioritizing those or which ones move forward, uh, those are decisions that you as a community can make. The thing that, and I'm talking to you and everybody else in the room, that concerns me about this, when you get a pre-designed set of plans to say that you have these five or six options of housing types to choose from, I, I see what you're trying to do, and I think everybody in the room would agree that one of the great things about old neighborhoods is when you walk down the street, every house is different. When you tell them, okay, it can only be this shade of blue or have this roofing type, or we want it to look like English Tudor, 
you're limiting the creativity of builders, or if you say they all have to have front porches, that affects affordability because that adds fifteen dollars to $20,000 of cost onto the house, where a builder could propose, hey, let's do an awning instead and spend 1000 and it looks just as good. So I should clarify, apologies, and we'll make sure in the recommendations we're clear on this. These pre-designed plans are more to give um, property owners an idea of what they can do, but it is not intended to be the only things they could do. So it's not intended to be, um, it's not intended to be that you can only use these pre-designed plans. Much like the ADUs, the intent there is just simply allowing property owners, and honestly in many ways, smaller property owners, uh, the ability to not necessarily have to go out and find an architect to desi completely design something. Uh, to give the ability of a starting point, to kind of start the idea process of like, oh, there are options outside of a single family house, or here are options that we can do on an ADU. It was not, in I apologize if I wasn't clear on this, but it was not intended to be limiting you to only the set of pre-designed pre plans. Well, one of the things that I, I just want to make sure is that it doesn't become, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the movie Shrek and the village of Duloc. I don't want it to be so perfect that it's creepy. Um, if, if we can allow, I'm fine with, you know, tipping your hat to the English tutor, but allow the builder next door, if they want to do something modern or if they want to do something that looks like a barn next to that, that's great. That's diversification. But don't, don't set up a set of rules that limits it so much that we have those overly planned looking neighborhoods that just look creepy. Did you look at um, some of the city projects that have been going on, like the university project, where the university and the city have bought some older homes, um, many of which had been rentals, student rentals, not to disparage students, I was one once, um, but have rehabbed them and then have turned them back um, with some purchasing subsidies. There have been several in my neighborhood, North Lucas Street, which, by the way, I would volunteer for any kind of calming device. <laughs> um, but it, just you know, a handful of, of properties within um, three or four blocks of mine seems to me, just my perception is, that the, um, the noise factor particularly in the evenings, has considerably diminished in, in that area. Um, and I've certainly appreciated some of the houses that have been resurrected. But anyway, um, those kinds of projects, I wonder if you looked at them and what you thought. Yeah, so we, uh, we have, we've heard about this wonderful program that you all have, and we've, uh, we have not been inside in any of these. We have walked around the north side, and we've seen some of them. And I think this is... This is a great thing to bring up is that there are, um, in implementing any vision that a community has, there are many ways of getting there. And I think you're highlighting a really important one, which is kind of a public-private partnership. These situations where it's not, where you're, you, in this case, you're working with the university to do this, but uh, where you're looking at, at how can we implement these plans, but looking beyond just what can the city on its own do and what can, a, what can a private property owner or developer do on their own? Uh, because the reality is uh, almost any vision plan needs to have multiple, multiple uh, people working on it and, and multiple people um, um, working towards that same goal. And so I think this is, it's a great program, and it's a program that, that should be continued. I hope it's still being continued. But um, that falls a little bit outside of... Um, uh, my expertise wheelhouse. <laughs> um, you mentioned an economist a couple times, and this may be more of a question for uh, uh, John and Doug, but um, is there a plan to, once the form-based code is, is developed, is to look at cost of construction and um, cost per square foot 
of what might be done through an economist. And obviously, we all know that density certainly um, leads to more affordability, the more density, but a lot of that can be erased if there's more regulations and, and certain requirements, example, the front porch or alleys or things like that. So I was just wondering if part of the plan from the city's standpoint will be to follow up with some studies on the economics of, of you know, the code before it's implemented. So these are recommendations that still have to be worked through in more detail, but we, we do like to work with economists when it comes time to doing, um, whether it's, you know, looking at um, additional things could be done in, in, in the north side marketplace, or if it's looking at the south district plan area, because uh, those are very fixed places, fixed geographies. Um, one uh, working with economists, economists can understand what are houses in the area selling for on a per square foot basis. So you can ask that question, what is the, what is the cost of a porch in relationship to the cost of the houses we sold? So maybe an awning or a stoop is another option besides a porch that can be done. The question of alleys as well. You know, if, if um, alleys cost a certain amount to implement, but if one can shrink the length of driveways, if the right-of-ways of the main streets are slightly smaller, maybe it's only implemented in those parts of the community where the, lo the lots are narrower, where it's more where the, um, consi the uh, consistent driveways cutting across the front yards of each of those houses makes it much harder to use the sidewalk which makes it much less of a, a, a coherent neighborhood. But in the, maybe, so maybe in those areas, in other communities where we worked, you know, lots that might be narrower than 50 feet, we say you have to be on an alley. But if you get a larger lot where a single driveway that might be eight or 10 feet wide, and the lot itself is 110 feet wide, that one driveway as you go down that block or that street it's not as much of an issue. In that case, it may not make as much sense to use an alley system there. So we think there's, there's flexibility in thinking about where one uses each of these tools and what, is it, what are the pros and cons of each. Look for someone who hasn't had a question. Um, one of the things that makes the North Side so diverse in its buildings is that a lot of those buildings were moved around from other places. Mm. Is it possible, I mean, I know you said that building new actually is more expensive, so can we keep open to the idea on the south side of Maxioka being some of this stuff down there? So, so. Not sure what you're referring to, but I will try and answer the question about one of the things that we 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 were uh, we explored last time we were in town and we showed some images was um, we showed some images of what how a cottage court might be able to be built on I think it was 724 Ronald Street um, where the ability there is you could build new cottages or it could also be a place where houses um, small houses from Goosetown or from East Side. Um, they could be moved instead of being um, demolished. And I mean, they could be moved there and reused there, which again, from a cost standpoint, yes, there is a cost of moving and there is a cost of bringing it up to date. That generally is still significantly less expensive than new construction. So that is an option. It does a couple things. It keeps some of the incredible character of the small houses that you have doesn't maintain them in their original location, but at least you can keep those houses and they can continue to add to the, the wonderful character that's in the north side and the east side. So I think that is, a, is an option to consider. Do you have examples from other college towns of successful ways of addressing that tension in neighborhoods like the north side between the student rental market and a diverse residential, yeah. longer yeah. term resident pattern? So I think, um, <laughs> I think there's always um, students, what we have found is that 
communities that have been able to find places where either the university or university public-private partnership or the private sector is encouraged to provide student housing, often at larger scale, um, it can help relieve the pressure on neighborhoods like the north side. I will tell you that, that the north side being so proximate to the university and being a really wonderful neighborhood and the easy access of being able to get to the north side marketplace and downtown, will always have some level of student appeal, right? Um, one example that, that I can point to, um, just because it's a city that I've been working with recently is um, Austin, Texas, University of Texas. I think they provide uh, about the same percentage of student housing as, um, as the university here. Uh, but they have been, they, their enrollment has grown and grown and grown quite significantly recently. And one of the things they did about, well, I want to say about 10 years ago, is they created um, the University Neighborhood Overlay District, which is very similar to your Riverside um, uh, form-based code area, where they said, you can build student housing, you can build housing here. They didn't say specifically student housing. And they said, we're going to lower the parking requirements to zero. You can build, you can, there's no density cap, so you can build as many units as you can fit within the envelope. And their envelope varied. So sometimes they allowed a 13-story tower building. Sometimes they were just six or seven stories tall. Uh, the combination of those things helped relieve the pressure on the neighborhoods most adjacent to the university. Did it solve all the issues? No. But it, it relieved a lot of the pressure of single-family houses getting converted into student housing. Um, I will tell you that, that even though they dropped their parking to zero, in the end, most of the developments there ended up with, um, I think, one, half a parking space per unit or something. So um, even though they dropped it to zero, they still did provide parking. I think one of the interesting things they did there, though, is they required the developers actually to debundle the parking from the units. So that if the developer built parking, a student could rent a unit and choose not to rent a parking space, or a student could rent, a, rent a, 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 an apartment and choose to rent a, 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 a lease a space for their car as well. Uh, and what that allowed is it allowed them to um, meet a couple of different various price points for students, which again, like I mentioned earlier, new construction generally is always gonna be more expensive than existing buildings. But what that meant was that student who was looking for the least expensive place to live, because that's often what they're doing, uh, they had a couple different price points to consider. So it, it helped relieve some of the pressure on the neighborhoods. On the aerial photo that you showed of the north side marketplace area, I, I know of at least one uh, property in that photo that has been purchased by the university itself. Did your study or your, your reflections on the community look at the impact of university sprawl, and does your plan have any recommendations about that? Uh, so we did not, uh, not, not as part of this study. Um, and I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm not sure that we understand all the various uh, concerns there to put it into recommendations. But that could be part of future studies. I mean, we could, I mean, again, whether that involves us or not, uh, understanding what, what impacts us. Uh, that, that is a, uh, well, I don't know the specifics of the issue you bring up. It is an issue that, that is very prominent in college towns, uh, universities and, and their um, acquisition of land. I think we have time for a couple more questions. I was curious if your, uh, one of the recommendations you mentioned related to parking on the north side was the idea of converting some of the single side, alternating side parking to two-sided. Was that an idea that sprang from your, your meetings with residents and others interested in this, or was that something that just came out of your own thinking about possibilities? And I guess I ask because as it is, the north side tends to serve as a parking lot for the university. And part of that, I, in my opinion, is because of the shuttle service that runs up to that area and makes it very convenient for people to come as commuters, park there, and go further into town. But as a resident, 
and I do have off-street parking, but if anyone ever wants to come and, and see me at my home during the daytime, during the school year, they're hard-pressed to find a place to park near where I live. And so I guess personally, whether it's a actual formal permitting process, I really feel strongly that people who are permanent residents who, who are living on a property in the north side should have some allocated space on the street that they can rely on even during business hours, if you will, for coming and going. And I know we have a, a neighbor immediately next door to us that's a family, and we're talking about you know trying to increase the numbers of families. They do not have off-street parking, and they have two vehicles, and if they have to run to the grocery store during the day, she comes home and there's nowhere to put her vehicle and to bring in her groceries. And so those kinds of things, um, in my mind, really act as a discouraging factor for people who might be considering moving in as single family residents and particularly families if they don't have any kind of parking. And you know, a lot of properties on the north side do have alley access, and I know there was mention of those areas a lot of them being used primarily for parking, but there are also a lot of properties that are corner properties that don't have full mm -hmm. access back to an alleyway and therefore do not have off-street parking. So anyway, those are both a question and some comments as well, so thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the parking on both sides came from, we heard from community members wanting more parking, we heard from community members wanting permit programs, um, we knew that at nighttime you were allowed to park on both sides. And we knew at one point you were actually allowed to park on both sides of the street. Um, so that with also discussion about safety, so cars and the speed by, at which cars generally feel comfortable driving on roadways, um, there was a consideration to something to throw out. I think it, it definitely needs, um, we, would, we would generally recommend that you run that as a, as a trial on a block or two, see how it works understand uh, what the benefits are. Um, and the issues of also that, um, as you mentioned, if you provide, if you open up the street for more parking, you also run the risk of having more students park during the day, right? You run the risk of, of um, essentially just inducing more people to, to park on, on the street. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why you could also consider doing that in combination with a permit, uh, parking permit program. Well, and I believe that, that one of the uh, impetuses for going to the alternate side parking was because they were trying to prevent street storage of vehicles mm -hmm. by assuring that cars had to be moved on at least a daily basis. So mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure how sure. going back to, to two-sided parking, how that particular problem would be addressed. So it's just another yeah. another consideration there. But. Uh, two more questions. Must be time for this to end if someone's talking twice. So, um, I just relevant to that consultation of economists on this. I would hope that those economists that are consulted with, which I don't know who t does this kind of thing, but that those economists would consider the externalities of cost when housing is not developed in a way that facilitates a walkable neighborhood or facilitates, you know, a, a porch, for instance, that makes the neighborhood more conversational. The city's also prioritized blue zone stuff, which encourages communities to be built in that way because they, people live longer and healthier and happier. And so I would hope that it's not just a, when the economist comes in, they don't just say, oh, well, none of this is actually economically feasible. Because yeah. I, I would hope that it also thinks about what the long-term costs of that design yeah. is, both in terms of how it, what kind of community it creates, but sure. also in terms of how cheap sure. the materials are that those places are built with in order yeah. to make them affordable and who that passes the future expense on to. So, yeah. so um, that, that's a great point. Again, thinking kind of um, long-term and from a sustainability angle. Uh, I will say that, that when we're talking about economists, um, we use economists in two different ways. One is really understanding on a lot-by-lot lot basis what can happen. You know, what are the kind of the costs? What can one expect? 
And then uh, we use economists also more in, in the way that you're describing, where you're thinking about kind of a bigger picture. What happens almost at a neighborhood scale when one, what are the, what is the, what are the outcomes of what happens in the South District if one was to design it in a fashion that may be more car reliant versus a fashion that uh, provides for multiple modes of transportation. Um, I will say that in our thoughts on the economists here, we were thinking more at the lot scale, really understanding the kind of the costs um, at a smaller scale. Uh, I know porches are coming up a lot, so I'll throw this out a little bit. Um, we worked on codes where porches are really prescriptive. It says it's gonna have columns, it's gonna have a roof, it's gonna have a floor. But we've also worked on other codes where the porch is more loosely defined and it's got a certain size to it, but it might simply be, a, as, as you described, an awning that pops out and has a floor. But I think these are all things that can be worked with as a community. Think about, well, what do we want that to be, right? What do we want? We want people to be able to be sitting in their front yard on a wonderful evening like tonight, right? and have a discussion informally with neighbors as they walk by. That doesn't always necessarily need to be the formal porch that I described. Um, there are a couple of projects where they're very contemporary buildings um, that I don't know that anyone would describe what were built as porches, but they function the same way as a porch in that they provide an area where you're out of the sun or you're out of the rain or maybe it's just, uh, and, and you're in your front yard and you're able to have those interactions. So I think there are all kinds of options to think about. Okay, last question. Uh, yeah, as far as the south side goes, mm -hmm. uh, you talked about one of the its biggest assets being its park and green spaces. Mm -hmm. And I agree, but uh, my concern is with all of the master plans I've seen so far, there seems to be very little forethought as far as protecting those parks and green spaces um, and, and keeping some kind of buffer between all the future development and what is already there. True Blood, for instance, I think is, in my opinion, the greatest thing this city has done in my lifetime. And I'm concerned about encroaching development all around it because as more housing is built and traffic increases, that's going to increase light, pollution, noise pollution, it's going to detract away from all of the things that many people go to the park to enjoy. Mm -hmm. and, and not just that, but the green spaces up, up the road over by the soccer fields. Mm -hmm. Like the plan right now has Lehman Avenue cutting right through that green space, in which case it ceases to become a green space and basically just becomes a ditch uh, that has some, has some wildflowers planted in it. And that I'm just concerned about ruining all of these wonderful assets that you've talked about um, simply because we, you know, there wasn't enough forethought to create some kind of buffer zone or some kind of uh, alley, you know, paths or whatnot to connect the existing green spaces because once you start separating them, then they cease to become one continuous green space and just become little tiny parcels kind of, you know, here and there and that really, I think, will detract from, like you said, is right now the greatest asset to that part of town. Yeah, and I, I think um, the South District Plan has some great, um, it's, I mean, it's a great document. I mean, the, the parks that you put in place even before the South District Plan are incredible resources. And part of the, part of the reason why we think it's, it's important both in the Northside Marketplace and in the South District to dive in a little bit more is to get to those questions that you're raising. How exactly, what exactly is the cross-section of the relationship between the existing greenway and new development that might come in? Are we talking about having 20-foot buffer, 50-foot buffer? Are we having a, a narrow street with houses facing out across that street and the buffer and the greenway? Are we having the backs of houses and their eight-foot tall fences backing onto that greenway? Right, I mean, there are all those questions about how these relationships happen because they all have their trade-offs. If you have an eight-foot-tall fence along the greenway, you can help kind of limit the light that happens on, on the greenway, but you also don't have any eyes on the greenway. So you have no idea what's going on back there. Um, but as you described, having development right up against the greenway might be a negative effect for the na natural area that where you really want it to be habitat, where not all critters want light at, in the middle of the night. Um, so 
I think these are all things that are important things to, to, to dive a little bit deeper into to understand. Uh, John will be available for a period of time after, after tonight's session. I'd like to thank you.